Welcome to WLNM, the web novel and manga review hosted by Zeke Changuris. Welcome to WLNM, the web light novel and manga review, the podcast dedicated to bringing our listeners, the artists and writers that are part of this renaissance of creativity, giving us stories to entertain and inspire us. We have something different today for you. Uh, we sit down with one of those unsung heroes of the manga and light novel community, a Japanese to English localization specialist, Katrina Leonidakis. Uh, yes. She, yes, and uh, so welcome <laughs> and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. No, thank you for having me. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, so um, let's get right into it. Um, sure. Why? I mean, this is this is one of those. Oh the, boy! Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I fell into my first career, so mm-hmm. I kind of fell into journalism. Um, so, did you like? Were you like from an early age? Yeah, I wanna, I wanna learn to read another language and then translate it for other people. Oh man, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I think my earliest career goal was I wanted to be a veterinarian and then when I realized I wouldn't get to work with only cats I decided I would be a brain surgeon and then it just went downhill from there Um, (laughs) I didn't actually consider translation a career opportunity until probably halfway through college Um, but by that time I had already been fan translating stuff for about six or seven years okay so did you have I mean so when did you uh, start immersing yourself in the language Um, Yeah, so I think like a lot of young translators, I got into it right at the beginning, you know, Toonami, you get your Dragon Ball Z, you get your Sailor Moon. I got really into that whole anime thing as a kid, worked out way into a teenager. um, And then as a teenager, there's so many things that I wanted to read and get into. But, you know, back in the kind of early to mid 2000s, availability wasn't that good in terms of trying to get your hands on officially translated manga or this is back in the day when they're releasing anime like two episodes at a time on dvd you have to go down to best buy and see if it was out yet yeah um so for me i really got into you know go online be like oh hey someone scanned in the japanese version that just came out last week i know three kanji and all the hiragana let's see what i can make of it um and it was kind of from there that i was like oh well you know it's it's hard but there's some rules like it's kind of like math i can just follow it um, and then from there, it just kind of tumbled down into, you know, picking up some Japanese books and learning the language. And, you know, the more that I translated kind of online, just like for this fan stuff, or just like people randomly commenting on like my live journal post being like, hey, I, I found this random thing. Can you translate this for me? Um, I'd have to look up half the things. But the more you look something up, you know, it started to slowly get into my brain to the point where I'm like, okay, maybe I should double major in this now instead of just, you know, doing this major. So. Um, yeah, that kind of led me down the, I, won't, I don't want to say dark path, but, you know, definitely led me down that way. <laughs> well, I mean, like I said, we all uh, turn our lives, uh, find our, our place somewhere, and uh, sometimes it's mm-hmm. not where we expect it. Um, but it, it's fun to, to hear that your story that, you know, you started out learning this stuff a lot because... I guess necessity is the mother of invention in this case, you know, you, mm-hmm. you wanted to learn uh, this because you wanted to have access to things that you couldn't get. And uh, so you took it upon yourself to figure it out. And uh, that's a lot more effort than a lot of people go through for anything. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely a part of it too, where, you know, you know, fan translation being what it is, um, despite, you know, the whole debate behind it, I think a lot of it for me was 
you know, I was able to provide something that other people kind of needed. So it was definitely a little bit of that, you know, oh, people come to me when they want this really obscure author's information or whatnot. And even if it was just five people, it meant a lot to me as like a 14 year old or a 15 year old sitting behind a crummy laptop screen where there's like four people around the world who are kind of depending on you. So it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic that the internet created, but um, it was something that really fueled me and made me feel really fulfilled to be doing something for someone else that in, in a way only I could do. What was the first thing uh, that you truly think you, you, you made a good translation for? Uh, oh God. For either fans or, <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Something you'd... that was good? Oh my gosh. Well, it's hard because I feel like my my standards for good have changed over the last 10, 15 years. Um, definitely looking back at some of the early stuff I did was not very good at all. Um, I would say probably when I got like midway through college, maybe about five or six years into like fan translating was when I started feeling like, okay, I think I did a good job on that. And I can look back at some of those now and go, okay, it wasn't too bad. It was like, I think it was just like a seinen manga. I don't want to go too in depth because yeah, I haven't linked my online persona to my real life one but i think it was definitely some sort of saying in manga yeah hey, uh well considering i came from the early days where we <laughs> were s- swapping uh vhs cassettes uh it, like the you big know, printouts yes um i am i'm very <laughs> i'm thankful for anyone who would go through the effort of uh subbing something for nothing so mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Even though you started, you know, after I had a full-time career, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so what do you think the biggest challenge as a translate, as a localization specialist or a translator, uh, when it comes to translating manga or anime, what do you think the largest challenge that you face when doing that? That's a good question. And I have two answers. Okay. Um, the first is linguistic, and I think it really comes down to culture. Um, and one of the well, the issue with that is, you know, if you've got a book or something, um, you don't have images to go with it. So if there is something super obscure and cultural, and you're localizing this for like uh, like a children's book or something, you can go ahead and change that for the locale that you're translating it for. That's kind of like what everybody points to is the Pokemon Jelly Donut thing. Um, if it hadn't been images, if they had just been a children's book, it would have been super easy and nobody would have noticed the issue. Um, but therein lies the issue when you're getting into graphic media, um, like a comic book or a manga, or you're looking at anime or a TV show, um, is that you know when you have something, like for example, a pun, um, and they show an image of the pun, kind of like, oh, let's, I'm gonna use my, for example, in, in Tokyo, they, the subway card is called Suika, um, which also means, um, it means a uh, watermelon. <laughs> so there's a couple different manga and anime that will say like, oh, I need to go get my Suica. And then I was like, why do you need a watermelon? Um, they'll <laughs> show watermelon on screen, um, but it does not work in pretty much any other language is, you know, you don't make the connection between something that's like a sweet card and yes. a watermelon or two very linguistically different words. So you can't change obviously what's on screen, like you're, unless you're four kids and going in and editing out all the different guns into water guns. Um, so you really have to kind of play around with, okay, what can I do to make that work? Um, can I make it work? Do I have to put a translator's note in? Like what, how can I change this around so that someone watching doesn't have to pull out a dictionary or like be completely drawn out of the moment? 
Um, so definitely with any kind of visual media that's being translated, that's always a concern. Um, and then the second biggest issue that I find with localization, and this is something that I've only been picking up on more recently, um, is kind of the limitations of the media itself. Um, so for example, uh, I work full-time at Sega on top of freelancing for manga and anime. And one of the biggest issues we run into when we're localizing games is there's only so much text that can fit in a text box or so much text that can fit in like a confirmation button. Um, and in Japanese, you can pack a lot of meaning into very few kind of Unicode characters. So if you wanted to say something like confirm, you could use kete, which is like two characters, but confirm is six. So if you've got a really, really tiny button to fit that kete in, now you have to say like, okay, do I put an okay? with just an okay, now I have to revise all of my standards. Are we gonna be using only okay without okay AY for the entire game? Um, so, and that's just one kind of instance. Um, and you can extrapolate that out into manga. Like there's only so much text that can fit in the bubble, um, especially those very, very tall, very, very thin ones that you'll see a lot in manga. You know, horizontal languages like you know English don't fit yes. too well into those. Yes. So you can't you can't pack too much into it. So while you're translating, you have to think, okay, you know, I'd love to put a whole sentence in there, but how do I kind of shrink that down in terms of words to make it fit, but also still communicate the same meaning? Um, so I think, and that's I don't think that's something a lot of people think about is just how much effort goes into making sure you're staying within the constraints of the text bubble of the box in the game. Or for subtitles, um, usually I get what 40 characters per line and two lines. So that's 80 characters per line of dialogue that I can put in. Um, and some of these lines of dialogue, they have to be on screen for at least a second. They can't be on screen for more than seven seconds um, because of the standards of different companies. So it's really about figuring out how do you fit all the information they just spat out at you into that constraint um, and make it not only informative but entertaining yeah it, it's so. it, it, well it's it's kind of like um my wife is is in social media she's been using twitter since twitter was a, mm. a thing and she is an expert at con like deconstructing ideas into 140 characters <laughs> uh, that That's is that is like one of her strong suits you can give her a concept and she's like okay and then turn it into 140 characters. Now with, and even now with 280, she's just like, she's, she always comes in under because she th she still thinks in that 140 character. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I found this uh, interesting. Um, I've been reading uh, Noragami and mm -hmm. put translation notes at the end of each of the manga. Mm -hmm. And I love how uh, it says, you know, on page one in English, Yori has just repeated the word no three times. Varying punctuation shows the progression of her feelings, but it bears pointing out that the original Japanese, she used two different words. The first word expressions were masaka, which is an expression of disbelief or strong hope that something is not true as translate, it is often translated as no, it can be, or don't tell me, the final and more em em emphatic expression is ya, which means no in a sense of rejection, as in no, that is something I don't want, uh, something I don't want, which mm -hmm. then, you know, I, I love that they do that because then I can go back, I go back to page 71 and read, you know, 
how she said and reread that scene and it puts it into a much more interesting context at times and, mm -hmm. I, and I can appreciate how there are challenges there and like all I guess anime watchers especially one who has been watching as long as I have um, we of course have picked up a little bit and I have actually studied for two years trying to learn and big some pieces of Japanese doing uh going to the Carnegie Library and taking a class mm -hmm. there so I I but I still don't even know enough to be dangerous but there are times where I'm like why did they put his like the character will be referring to she will definitely say like Oni-chan but it the subtitler will put the name mm -hmm. of the character instead of what if you watch anime at all you know that refers is referring to like big brother so mm -hmm. why why is do you know why decisions like that are made sometimes oh absolutely um and i would probably do the same thing okay. um in that case um i think and, and this is a big discussion that i could go into very a very long time for i'm not going to go okay. um so it comes down to cultural differences um and kind of what the meaning they're trying to express is um okay. I feel like in, especially some people condescendingly call it like the very weeby weebs, uh, but I think you're right. Like these are anime watchers have picked it up over the years. Um, and previously when you're looking at stuff like fan translation or whatnot, you're looking at this history of translation where some of these very Japanese words were just left in. Um, and it wasn't for any real reason. It was just because, oh, you know we don't have a direct equivalent to that in english and i don't want to change it so just learn the words okay. um but when you're looking at and of course like translation theory does evolve and change over the years um but for the last 50 or 60 years the kind of i feel like the predominant approach to translation has been especially in media kind of you're looking at more cultural adaptation um so you know if i'm sitting down with my mom or dad i should be able to watch something like great pretender with them without them having to pause every few seconds and be like, okay, what does he mean by Sama? What does he mean by Onichan? Like, what, okay. what is Itadakimas, you know? Um, so I think there, there's this history in the anime fandom of, okay, well, we've left these words as Japanese for this long, why should we do anything different? Um, and that comes back to kind of translation theory in that, you know, when you're experiencing something either through a dub or a sub, you should be, Inter your experience should be interrupted as little as possible. Um, so we call it equivalent experience in translation theory. So that means basically whatever translation or localization that you're doing of some sort of foreign property, the audience, the target audience should in the target language should have as near to an equivalent experience as the source audience in the source language as possible. Um, and sometimes that means changing things up so you do have a more american joke instead of a japanese joke or you know skipping over honorifics because those aren't just something we do in you know american english um kind, so kind of like so it doesn't interrupt a suspension of disbelief in a way kind of like how yeah, kind it, of. in theater you you do your best to uh not interrupt that idea not break that fourth wall to mm -hmm. let the person immerse themselves in the visual and auditory aspects of theater yeah no that's a great way to put it um so yeah so for your example specifically um with in in japan it's typical to refer to an older sibling even if they're your twin brother who was born five minutes before you 
you'll it's typical for them to use onichan or like onisan or some form of brother with an honorific. Um, we don't do that here in the at least in the United States. Um, there are some, I feel like there are some smaller kind of subcultures where they will call their older brother, like, hey, bro, like, hey, brother, can you come help me out? Um, but we don't have the same kind of cultural connotations. Um, I would even go to say that if I'm calling someone, hey, bro, come over here, I'm not thinking they're actually brothers, I'm thinking they're friends. Um, right. So it's all about that kind of cultural adaptation. So, you know, if I'm translating something for a Western predominantly American audience, then I am going to be changing stuff like Onichan to whatever the person's name is, because that's how that person would refer to their brother if they were in this kind of cultural context of Western American culture. Okay. Um, now, sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, go there ahead. Are, there are different translation theorists that kind of don't agree with this. Um, I think there's one, I forget what his name is. There's one German translation theorist who talked about foreignization saying like, you know, it's a disservice to the audience to kind of muddle that to make them have that equivalent experience. Like you should be preserving certain cultural things and people should be aware that they are reading a translation and kind of honoring that fact. Um, kind of in the same way that like, if you're in the theater, you should kind of acknowledge that yes, there is lighting going on. There is this music that's happening that they're singing but it's not really happening in universe. Um, you know, this is kind of suspending your suspension of disbelief a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of debate about it. And I personally subscribe to more of the, you should provide that equivalent experience, um, especially when it comes to kind of this subculture of anime watchers who are really accustomed to having everything in. It's, you know, I hate to be the person, I hate to be the bad guy sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're not doing that anymore, guys. Come on, let's get it. Let's get into the 21st century. Come on, guys. So. Well, uh, and, and this this is, this is, I guess, in a, a cultural side topic in a in a way um mm -hmm. but two things uh, like you were saying uh if, as far as relations go mm -hmm. it's kind of like in in greece or greek everyone's a cousin mm -hmm. like i was saying my father's my father's cousin is my uncle but everyone else it doesn't matter whether they're third or fourth or whatever they're just a cousin and mm -hmm. but uh, as you were saying with honorifics linguistically I have found because I grew up in like the edges of Appalachia uh, mm -hmm. the we still when I was growing up you would use miss or mister before you referenced an adult and in many cases the person you were with you used their full name mm -hmm. and it was miss uh, Violet or Ms. or uh, you use the Miss Sandy, you know, you use honor, like you use Miss or Miss, M Miss or Mrs. and their first name. And uh, same with, you know, it was Mr. Tom, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, I noticed a strange, yes, uh, parallel between some of the, the, for lack of better term, that we had honorifics in this very small subculture of, uh, Eastern Appalachia, where you referred to people in this overly polite manner that hadn't quite changed with mm -hmm. the modern era. It's just a, one of those fascinating quirks that I found and uh, quickly and kind of identified because I'm like, yeah, well, we used to be like, yes, you know, refer mm -hmm. to people with their full names or be Miss or Ms. Uh, all the time. 
you know, you, mm -hmm. you wouldn't think of addressing an adult without saying Mr. or Miss. Just mm -hmm. you wouldn't. <laughs> but uh, so what, um, I mean, what, well, I'm trying to decide. There's probably, it's probably <laughs> in its nest to go into what I would call, uh, some would call a disaster of uh, localization. Um, because okay. I, I find that word to be loaded in some ways, because there are people who are like, well, localization, like you were saying with the rice cake versus mm -hmm. jelly donut, or mm -hmm. the absolute strangest localization or worst localization, in my opinion, is uh, Macross turns into Robotech. And mm -hmm. it's a completely different animal than what mm -hmm. originally was. And it seems to have a, for some people, the term localization tends to come like loaded because it means, well, you're changing the context of what's happening. And that's what I hear when I'm talking to, I mean, don't talk to as many as I do when we do have conventions, but when we have conventions, uh, you know, you talk to them and they're, they're, they're some very staunch, you know, almost militant persons who are like, no, you have to, it's got to be direct. It's got to be, this is what they were saying in their cultural context. Because if you don't mm -hmm. do that, it means uh, you're, you're stripping away their, their, their cultural identity. I'm like, okay. I mean, it, it is, like I said, it, it, I found it to be a, a loaded way of, for some people mm -hmm. is, is they're like, well, localization means stripping away what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. and I think the way you put it, uh, you're just trying to reduce the barriers for entry for the story. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out kind of like you said that it's, it, depending on who you talk to, it can mean different things. Um, because in the realm of translation theory, it's a very well-defined word. Um, but when you're looking at some of the people who claim to be very against localization, they have a completely different definition of the word than you might right. think. So it's, it's difficult sometimes as a professional to interact with those people because you're trying to explain what localization is and then they try to define it on their end and it's like, well, we're clearly talking about two different things. We need to get some sort of terminology going <laughs> so we understand what's going on. Um, right. But you know, they're very, they're very stubborn and very kind of clinging to their own definition. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting debate to have um, because this is something that's been going on for millennia in translation theory, like as early as like uh, Roman translations of Greek poetry where people were arguing about whether or not they were localizing too much. Um, <laughs> this has been going on for years and years and years and years. Um, you could say that it, about it, the gods and goddesses. Were they, oh, yeah. were well, they localized when they changed yeah. their names? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, if you're looking at Rome stealing some of the Greek mythology, maybe. But uh, I think the biggest, and while the anime debate's really big, you look at um, people arguing over translations of the Bible between like the year 500 and the year 1500, and it is it is absolute chaos. Like people got executed for bad translations of the <laughs> yes. Bible. Like, like there was one church. I think I forget who the translator was, but there was a the Roman church or not the the Roman Catholic Church had a new translation commissioned of the Bible. And there was one uh, there was one pastor, I guess, somewhere in Italy that started using it. And the people rioted because they're like, this is different. That's not what Luke 13, four is. You're defacing the word of God. And they threw a riot, they're like burning houses down and stuff. Like it was, it was intense. Um, but anyways, this is a, this is a debate that's been going on for a very long time um, over whether or not you should quote unquote localize. 
Um, and I think that as, as controversial as it might be to say as a professional, I think some of these very strong-willed, you know, very loud people about localization on the internet do sometimes have a point. Um, usually the one or two kind of examples that they point to are examples of, you know, something that was it was a poor localization choice. Something like, you know, the Dragon Maid incident gets pulled up a lot. Um, you know, different political jokes that kind of made their way into dubs that people took offense about. And again, these aren't people who are going to watch the dubs. Um, these are mostly people who are like, oh, dubs are bad because they're over-localizing anyways. Um, but the fact that they went too far to the point where even professionals would probably agree, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. You know, that's what they want to use as their kind of their backup. Um, and again, you have to think, uh, kind of I mentioned earlier, there's this history of, you know, under-localization and poor translation in the anime and manga industry already, um, based off of those old fan translations where someone who maybe studied abroad for a semester in Japan translated a whole bunch of stuff. And that became the standard um, for a while, I guess, for that series. Um, so you've got kind of combined with this history of kind of anti-official translation saying like, oh, look what they've done to stuff like Macross or look what they've done to stuff like Pokemon um, or, or One Piece. Or they're censoring it by changing things. That's the latest Yeah, is they're censoring it. That's the term, oh, yeah. censoring it because they're changing things. Yeah, and I mean, I, I look back because I started to get into anime back in the day when they really were censoring things, when anime was being brought over for children. You know, you got stuff like yes. One Piece where they're, taking out all the blood and they're ed physically editing the animation cells to be child-friendly. Um, or stuff like uh, one of the earliest anime I was really into was Cyborg 009. They did a reboot way back in the early 2000s that was on Tsunami. Um, and I remember getting so excited to get the uncut DVD version. They only released one <laughs> DVD and it had first eight episodes and did not release anymore. Um, but the uncut version was literally, they just had a scene of like a guy getting stabbed and falling over. And I was like, that's it? Like oh, I guess I can't put that on Cartoon Network, but like, that's it, that's all I took out kind of thing. Um, so there was a time when they really were censoring everything, but now that anime is becoming a lot more mainstream and is being targeted more towards young adults, they aren't going in and changing anything. If anything, the only place that really is doing that is broadcasting stations in Japan will literally only show a censored version of something that's very graphic or usually sexual in nature. Well, you've, um, you've, you've got to save, you got to yeah. save the, do that and then save the other ones so you can have the DVD sales. Yeah, buy the Blu-rays, guys. Buy so. the Blu-rays. That's how you're going to get, I mean, that's how you're going to get more anime made <laughs> and how you're going to see the goods. Buy, buy the Blu-rays, get the whales to buy the Blu-rays. Yeah, so I think, I think the claims of censorship um, when it comes to localization are, blown grossly out of proportion okay. um the i would say the only time i've ever encountered any form of censorship in my translations career is when i was working on interspecies reviewers um <laughs> everyone's I which mean, those of us who watched it enjoyed the hell out of it oh my god i loved working on that show it was fantastic and i'll tell you right now like everyone at Funimation who was on that show loved it we had so much fun with it um and I, I was not in the loop for what happened behind the scenes. I was just told we are not longer continuing on with this. Um, but I have a hunch that it was probably something to do, you know, with, you know, it, an episode being hosted on Apple or something like that. And they're going, okay, you know, we've got like a, someone who looks like underage person, like violating someone when they're saying, please stop. Maybe we don't want this on our platform. So I can completely understand where that came from. Um, and that did result in us ending up going through Australia to finish up the series. Um, but I mean, you also look at Japan, like eight out of nine 
TV stations showing it in Japan took it off because it was too bad. Like, <laughs> this is not a case of, you know, the liberal Western media censoring stuff. This is just, you know, they went everyone, a little bit too far. Everyone thought they went too far, which, uh, which is fine. A there, there's far. a place, which is there, fine. but there's a place for that too. You know, there's a, there's a mm-hmm. place for those programs and you can find them. And, exactly. uh, you know, it, it just, yeah, you're not going to put everything <laughs> on broadcast television. That's just that's yeah. just the way the world works. Basically. But yeah, in terms of censorship, when these people are talking, um, it's really nothing to do with that. And again, most of the examples they point out are stuff that came out years ago that most, if not all professionals go, no, that you're right, those are bad, but this is different. So yeah, yeah it's, a, it's so, an interesting conversation. Go ahead. So you had a lot of fun on, on interspecies reviewers. Um, oh, yes. Which... Uh, what other uh, shows have you really enjoyed? I mean, I personally, as far as a viewer goes, I freaking loved uh, Oh Maidens in Your Savage Season. Oh, I'm so I glad you did. That, that was one. one of my favorites. Oh, and I think uh, Oh Maidens in the Savage Season, I feel like was one of the first translations where I kind of went a little wild. I was like, I think I can get away with some stuff on this. Like, <laughs> let's go, let's put, let's push the boundary. Like if I was given free reign to translate something, let's go. Um, and it ended up coming out really nice. So I'm, I'm really glad that it did. And of course, the series itself was really well written. I mean, Murrow Cut is amazing. Um, yeah. So I was really, that was super fun to work on. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, I've been on the last couple seasons and releases of Utana Prince Sama, um, which I was really into way back in like the early 2010. So it's really cool to be working on that now. Um, I really enjoyed working on Chihayafuru. I did all of the... Uh, the home video releases for Sentai Filmworks. And really how is that, how is that translating? I mean, that's poetry specific. Is that a whole, no, that's yes. a whole nother challenge, isn't it? It is. Um, well, actually the, when we did the Sentai release, uh, we actually hired, I think, Alan Covert to do the poem translation. Um, and when he did the poem translation, he actually translated these, cause this is the Kyakuni issue. This has been translated hundreds and hundreds of times over the last however many years. Um, and he actually did the poem translations so that they could work in English, at least the syllable structure. So the syllable okay. structure is all the same. Um, unfortunately, the syllable structure might be the same, but it doesn't directly translate into kind of like the game, the way the game strategy is done, okay. which is all the stuff about like, oh, there's five different poems that start with chi. So we need to make sure that we listen for the second syllable on these. Um, and those obviously don't work when you translate all these random exactly. poems completely differently. Um, so it was interesting. Um, and I know Crunchyroll, when they did the simulcast, um, ended up doing kind of their own translation for these poems that did actually adhere to the rules. Um, for Sentai's, we did something that was a little bit more syllabary, but we kept all of it in kind of like as in a, a song lyric. So I would do the romaji and the English translation kind of on screen. Because um, sometimes they would talk both about, okay, they're saying chi ha, so now I can get the card. So you want to be able to show people, okay, they heard the chi, they heard the ha, because that's what the Japanese dub is saying. Uh, but then you also want them to understand the meaning behind the poem, because that also plays into kind of the overarching plot, you know, some of the historical lessons they're teaching, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a really interesting show to work on because of that. Um, and even though I'm very much a person who's like, I don't, I think you should have kind of an equivalent experience. I don't think there's a way to localize this in a way where you could get away with something like no honorifics or no, you know, Japanese references whatsoever. You can't jelly donut Chihayafuru. It's not, yeah. it's well, just it's, it's not unique, possible. It's a uniquely Japanese game. Mm-hmm. 
yeah it, yeah it's it, yeah I, when i no. i tried to figure out a way to use that kind of game method for to teach like english students and i couldn't figure it out but i thought it was a a very clever clever idea if maybe we could figure out how to do it with sonnets from shakespeare yeah that that's a really great kind of equivalent that you could do it with i mean if, if shakespeare had a hundred sonnets and a whole bunch of them all started with the same few words you could totally make a game very similar out of it um but yeah there's no real direct equivalent to it in english um, yeah but i think um, and this is something that we think about when we're localizing stuff like anime or games or manga um, is that, you know, if something is so intrinsically tied to the source culture, um, sometimes it's best not to localize it. Um, so, for example, like if I'm working, if I get to make all my own choices, I'm not influenced by the publishing company or whatnot. If I'm translating something that takes place in a Japanese school or like is a Chihayafuru, I will typically keep stuff like honorifics. I'll typically keep cultural references. Um, I try to avoid any kind of translator's note, um, but I do want it to, you know, there, it's it's set in Japan. Um, we have, Sega has a specific kind of a similar approach when they're doing the Yakuza series, um, which is something I've worked on for the last few years with Sega. Uh, Scott Stricher, I guess, has in some interviews has described it as, you know, this is a Japanese game, you're in Japan, we don't want you to pretend like you're in New York now, like bashing bad guys. You're in Japan, you know, this is, he's a Japanese guy. You're gonna go do some Japanese things and you're gonna like it, you know? <laughs> um, and I think his approach to localization, you know, he doesn't keep, it's very entertaining. It's really snappy. The comedy is still there. There's a couple of things here and there that, you know, they have to add a couple of extra lines, um, which they can do because it's a game. You're not constrained by like, you have three seconds now to say this line in ADR. So in the yeah. game, you can get away with a little bit more. Um, but he really has kept that kind of Japanese flavor to the Yakuza games. And it's worked tremendously. Like Yakuza is bigger than ever now. So um, definitely when it comes to stuff like that, you know, you've got to keep the culture in there. You can't, I want to say over localized. But conversely, um, and I'm sure as you realize how big Isekai is right now, where everyone's yes. getting sent to another world and the fantasy stuff is exploding. I think next season we've got like 12 different Isekai going on right now. Which it's is fine because it's, it's a very, 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 very old genre, as I keep trying to remind people. Lewis Carroll wrote an Isekai. Oh my God. I hadn't realized that. Because I, I always use Inuyasha. I'm like, Inuyasha is an Isekai, and people freak out about Alice that. But you're and right. Wonderland is an Isekai. Oh Actually. It's an isekai. Morpheus descent, you know, uh, the Ovid, you know, Morpheus going to the underworld in a way is you could tie that to a, uh, a, a as almost as if it wasn't a Sekai because oh, he God, goes to another land. So Alice in Wonderland is probably the most well-known Sekai in the world. Oh God. Hence every my English, whole life has changed. Hence every English girl in uh, every English girl in every anime is blonde haired, wears a British tea length style dress and her name is Alice. Her name is Alice, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, well, I've, I've uh, worked on quite a few isekai um, nowadays, both in manga and anime. Um, and I, one of the first things I do is I get rid of honorifics, I get rid of a lot of that cultural stuff um, because it's not gonna exist. Like you're not gonna go into a D&D campaign in this high fantasy and be sawning and chawning everybody. Yes, exactly. This isn't Japanese culture. So, and I've had a yeah. couple of people get a little upset about that. Um, but then you also have stuff where you've got like the one like Japanese guy who dies and then like gets reincarnated into this world and he is using songs on everything and so is everyone else. Um, but then it's like, okay, well, what do you do? Cause like, like Nair has only lived in this fantasy world her entire life. Why would she be using San with this rando dude that just 
popped out of a portal. So it's it's kind of an interesting because the magic of the reincarnation thing. is letting him translate these words <laughs> from their language into his language, and so he's his the magic is adding the honorifics, even oh, though God. he is not hearing the honorifics. Oh. They, See, I, I'm good at mental gymnastics. <laughs> there you go. No, you got you got far better mental gymnastics than me, but no, it's so it's kind of interesting. But yeah, that's definitely my rule of thumb is if it's set in Japan and it's very Japanese, I'll keep it in. Um, and if if it's not set in Japan, it's like no, it, get it out of here. Okay. Well, um, I want to make sure to, you know, we can't thank guests like uh you uh for uh enough for you know, giving us manga and anime in a format we can read uh, <laughs> and uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts on this industry. Um, and if you listeners like what you've heard and would like me to continue to share these conversations with artists, creators, and industry pros out there, please click the subscribe button. Until next time, keep reading. This has been a WLNM podcast.